welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 3. Everybody is in a false position. George Brown was a handsome man. When you scan those group photos of 19th century politicians with their rows of stodgy, overly bearded men in their dark suits and top hats, seemingly indistinguishable one from the other, George Brown does tend to stand out. If he was, I might be inclined to say, on Tinder today, you might even swipe right. In his own time, people noticed his good looks, but mostly it was his manner and his opinions that impressed. Few people could resist forming a firm opinion of George Brown. Good or bad, adoration or disgust, even fear. Brown had come to Canada as a young man from Scotland in the 1840s and soon entered the newspaper business with his father. He founded the Globe newspaper as a reform organ, and yes, this is the predecessor of today's Globe and Mail. By the early 1850s, when Brown got himself elected to the Assembly, he was already seen as a prominent reformer. Never shy to voice an opinion, Brown fervently believed a lot of things. A strong voluntarist, that is, a believer that churches should have no connection to the state, he fought against Catholicism's inroads into Canada, and he resisted all efforts to give the church state support, most notably in fighting against separate Catholic schools. He was also the chief protagonist in the fight for representation by population, and his paper ensured that the cry for rep by pop rang out in its own time and all the way down to today. But he was not a pure clear grit like some other Western radicals. And remember, Western in this age meant those living in Canada West, and in particular in the area kind of Toronto and westward in the peninsula under Lake Ontario and north of Lake Erie. Brown was too fond of parliamentary institutions to please other clear grits, too distrustful of republicanism and its American influences. So he was radical enough to upset and be upset by the moderate reformers who were trying to build a coalition with French Canadians, the Lafontaines and Baldwins of the world. But he was also insufficiently radical to truly appease the fervent clear grits. In the early 1850s, he was also a pretty astute observer of the political scene. We left off last episode by covering the fall of Lafontaine and Baldwin amidst the tribulations of a reform government that was trying to contain all its many contradictions, and with the Gavazzi riots of June 1853, where the tumultuous religious tensions of the country between Catholic and Protestant burst out into wild violence on the streets of Montreal. It was around this time that George Brown wrote in The Globe that the political situation couldn't last. By this, he was referring to the current nature of political alliances in what was then the reform government. To think, he wrote, that the Liberals of Upper Canada can long continue in close alliance with the Lower Canadian Party, as at present constituted, is absurd. Brown thought that the conservative French Catholics should really be allied with the high Tories of Upper Canada, the remnants of those who he associated with the old family compact, that old group of wealthy landowners who had so dominated Canadian politics before the rebellions. Once these two extreme factions, as he saw them, found each other, this would leave the clear-thinking moderates of both sections to join together in a sound alliance that could truly govern. 
and George Brown certainly thought that he, or someone like him, should be at the head of that coalition. It was, he thought, only a matter of time because, as he put it, everybody is in a false position just now. George Brown didn't know how right, but also how wrong, he was. For the mid-1850s would see the creation of a new political coalition. Unfortunately for the handsome Mr. Brown, it wasn't the realignment he wanted or foresaw. All right, this week we're back in the Canadas in the mid-1850s. To start, we're going to briefly explain who it was that took over after Baldwin and Lafontaine left office. Then we're going to skip ahead to the year after the Gavazzi riots, as the same kind of tensions which erupted there on the streets also expressed themselves in the halls of political assembly. A whole host of issues kept creating divisions, especially about the rights of Catholics to some kind of state support, including the Catholics in Canada West and the question of separate schools. The inability of the reform government to ever finally deal with old issues, like what to do with the clergy reserves and how to end seigneurial tenure, drove dissatisfaction. But don't think that the politicians of the 1850s disagreed on everything, because there was one issue where they tended to agree in principle, if not on all the particulars. And this issue was? Well, it was railways, of course. The building of railways, the chartering of railway companies, raising money, debt financing, creating a climate and a series of regulations that allowed for it, and actually laying down track. The 1850s were the years of massive railway expansion, and Canadian politicians very much had their mouths in the trough. In an age with vastly looser ideas of conflict of interest, Canadian politicians were the great boosters of the railway age. And if they happened to enrich themselves at the same time, well, who could blame them? Actually, it was possible to blame them. It just took a lot more than it would today. And one politician in particular was going to find that allegations of corruption would be what finally pushed things over the edge for his government. But that's going to come in due course. For now, settle back as we follow the final days of the Reform Coalition in the 1850s and see what emerged to take its place. When first Robert Baldwin and then later Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine stepped down, they were replaced by men with long histories in the Reform Coalition. The goal was to keep the Great Compromise alive, and so two men with a rich history of doing just that were selected. We've met each before, actually. One was Francis Hinks. He showed up several times last season, but perhaps most dramatically as the instigator of the bromance between Lafontaine and Baldwin. It was Hinks who first wrote to Lafontaine after the rebellions when the British announced plans to unite the Canadas together in a single province. While most in Lower Canada angrily denounced the move, Hinks saw and wanted to convince Lafontaine that he should also see the great possibilities that a united province of Canada could offer to reformers. A united province of Canada could allow the solid bloc of French Canadians from Lower Canada to join with the sometimes less numerous but still useful gang of reformers from Upper Canada. Together, they could form a majority in the Assembly and assert authority in the Canadas in perpetuity, or that had been the plan. Hinks was always, though, a bit too pragmatic. Even after helping to instigate the alliance, Hinks turned around and abandoned his friends. 
he was lured away by the governor to accept a position on the executive in the early 1840s. This was mostly because he was impressed by the then governor's plans of economic development that Hinks could very much get on board with. He wanted to be where the action was. Still, it hadn't hurt him in the end, and Hinks later rejoined the reform camp to help Baldwin and Lafontaine get into government themselves in the late 1840s. With Baldwin now gone, Hinks was the logical choice to take over on the Canada West side, a man who was critical of George Brown's voluntarism, thinking that, the, that, thinking that that strain of reform threatened the alliance with French Canada. On the lower Canadian side, Augustin Norbert Morin, Morin maybe I suppose you could say, stepped forward, albeit somewhat reluctantly. Morin was never one to assert himself overly, even though he had a personal history that put him at the center of events for most of the last quarter century. He had been a journalist and lawyer, the founder of the, one of the most important papers of the day. Morant was the man who actually drafted the 92 resolutions way back before the rebellions, demanding constitutional change from the British. He had supported the rebellions and then hid out to avoid capture, and was eventually captured and sent to prison. Leaving prison, he had come back to public life as an ally of the moderate, but still definitely nationalist Lafontaine. Now, you might also remember Morin as the guy whose letters to and from the Tory Draper had been exposed in the mid-1840s. This was when Draper and the then governor were doing everything possible to win over a few prominent French-Canadian voices to stay in power and avoid giving over power to Lafontaine's crew. Now, the lure hadn't worked. Morin resisted. Eventually, when Lafontaine and Baldwin did form a government, the assembly elected Morin as its speaker. And famously, in the midst of the Rebellion Losses Bill controversy, the story goes that Morin so kept his head that even as the mob rampaged in the building and the flames rose higher, Morin calmly asked for an official motion to end the session before urging his colleagues to flee from the fire. Morin and Hinks would be as the tradition now was, almost co-premiers, each with responsibility for his own section. The hope was that this renewed coalition could carry on exactly where Baldwin and Lafontaine had left off. They didn't just leave it there, though. Hinks, in particular, sought to do one more thing to shore up the Reform Alliance, and that was to win over some of his harshest critics, the Clear Grits. Hinks convinced some of the leading clear grits that they should join with him in the government. It was kind of a ballsy move. The clear grits, after all, demanded Republican institutions and upper Canadian autonomy. They especially disliked religious, uh, read Catholic, links to the state. And this issue was a perennial problem. Now, amazingly, several clear grit leaders agreed to join the government. It's unclear exactly why they said yes, likely I'd say out of a mix of ego, flattered to be asked, and perhaps a naive belief that once in power they could exert influence. Anyway, this newly formed coalition went to the governor and asked for the assembly to be dissolved and a new election to be held. The election lasted for several weeks over December in 1851, this is after Lafontaine and Baldwin had resigned, and by the, in the, early in the new year of 1852, it was clear that the reformers had won about the same number of seats as they'd had before the election. They could still control majority in the assembly. So 
That's good, right? Well, sort of. The problem was that although the divisions had been patched over, although a bandage had been taped over the top, the gaping wound in the Reform Alliance still remained underneath. How on earth was Hinks going to satisfy both his lower Canadian colleagues who saw the coalition as a means of protecting the rights and character of Catholic French Canada, while at the same time appeasing his clear grit supporters with their resentment about French Canadian influence and distaste for clericalism and state-supported religion? That's where things stood at the time of the Gavazzi riots in June of 1853 that we covered last week. Now, if there was one man who came out of the Gavazzi riots with a spring in his step, it was the previously mentioned handsome George Brown. In fact, back in Quebec after Gavazzi had managed to escape the mob, the crowd had continued to vent their fury. They rushed to the parliamentary buildings to interrupt the evening session. Remember, after 1849, when another mob had burnt down Parliament in Montreal, the decision was made to get Canada's capital right the heck out of Montreal, unruly as it was. But where to put it? If you sent it to some upper Canadian city, this would only anger the lower Canadians. And the same was true in reverse if you put it in lower Canada. The solution? Well, let's make Canada's capital a traveling show, switching back and forth from Toronto to Quebec City each city to serve as capital for a five-year stint. At the time of the Gavazzi riots, the capital sat in Quebec, and the crowd decided if they couldn't have Gavazzi, they could at least head over to the assembly and assault the one man who spoke up most strenuously in Parliament for Protestant rights and against Catholicism. And that man was, you guessed it, George Brown. Now, luckily, Brown hadn't arrived yet to the assembly that night, though that didn't stop the crowd from angrily shouting for him to come out. Brown, Brown, came the chant. We'll treat you like Gavazzi. Well, given that they'd just thrown Gavazzi off a 15-foot-high podium and attempted to bash him to a pulp, it wasn't the kindest of promises. For Brown, though, the threats only enhanced his reputation. The Protestants in Lower Canada celebrated him, and this was doubly true of those in the Protestant confines of Toronto. It also didn't hurt that Brown had a newspaper to ensure everyone knew that the crowd had wanted to attack him and to play up his own affinity to the almost murdered Gavazzi. Brown, of course, was a reformer, and the government of the day was ostensibly a reform government. But as I'll keep reminding you, parties in this day were very loosely organized coalitions. Brown did sometimes support the government, but he was ornery. He insisted on being independent on supporting the reform government only when it followed policies that he believed were liberal. When they failed to do so, he didn't mind using his own eloquent voice and the megaphone of his newspaper to denounce them. He also seemed to enjoy exposing each and every situation when those clear grit radicals supported the government in doing what the clear grit said they disapproved of, like, you know, supporting the establishment of some Catholic religious institution. They could run, or just not show up for a crucial vote, but they couldn't hide from Brown's and the Globe's scrutiny. It didn't help that despite all the violence and death in the Montreal riots in particular, no one was ever convicted for the Cavazzi riot violence. Despite an exhaustive coroner's inquiry, it wasn't even clear who, if anyone, had given the order for the soldiers to fire. Even when the memory of Gavazzi faded, 
the sense of aggrievement lingered, only to reemerge every time the hinks moran government offered some state support for a Catholic institution in Lower Canada or, even worse, supported separate Catholic schools in Upper Canada against the wishes of many Upper Canadians. Now, it might have been fine if only the hinks moran government could actually deliver on what it was supposed to achieve, but on the major promises the coalition had made, it stumbled repeatedly. How about ending the clergy reserves? Well, the government tried. They were engaged in an ongoing dispute with the British on the ability of Canada to settle the clergy reserves issue, with some British officials claiming that the Canadians did not actually have the authority to even do this. Now, it didn't help that British politics were in disarray in these years, with unstable coalitions coming and going and giving different answers to the Canadian government's queries. The upshot for Hinks was that he couldn't get a win for his clear-grit allies in dealing with this long-standing issue. Nor was the government able to deliver on another major promise to finally end seigneurial tenure, that old feudal land-holding system from Lower Canada. And this only fueled criticism of the government from the Rouge, that is, the more radical liberals from Lower Canada. It's a faction that was sort of like an equivalent of the Clear Grits, but in Lower Canada. The analogy doesn't quite work, but it's probably good enough. On another major issue, representation by population, Hinks and Morin tried to evade the demands by engaging in a classic fudge. Yes, they said, Canadians needed more representation. But hey, didn't everyone? I mean, literally, everyone. Yes, Upper Canada was underrepresented, so let's give them more seats in the Assembly. But, well, let's give Lower Canada more seats too. The government passed through the Assembly a bill which increased representation for each section, from 42 members each to 65 members each. Of course, this hardly satisfied those who felt that the present state of sectional equality was unfair. It simply made government more expensive. So, this is how things stood at the end of 1853 and over the winter of 1854, as the legislatures prepared to meet for a new session of Parliament. The great ministry had been taken over by Hinks and Morin, but, if anything, the divisions of old remained as strong as ever. It was proving impossible to keep the coalition together, even under the leadership of someone as pragmatic as Francis Hinks. So far, We've been talking about these often symbolic issues that affected French, English, and Protestant Catholic divisions, but we also need to deal with a much more practical and pressing issue for all Canadians in the 1850s, and that was economic development and, most importantly, railways. The 1850s were for railways what the 1950s were for the automobile, the age when this new transportation technology transformed the landscape. There had been a few small railways in Canada before the 1850s, but this was the decade when the new technology became ubiquitous. At the beginning of the decade, there were no more than a few hundred miles of rail built. By the end of the decade, more than 3,000 miles of track would be laid down, and several massive corporations vied for supremacy. Rail track would join Windsor in the west to Montreal in the east, and trade could move from Montreal down to the Atlantic Ocean to a terminus in Portland, Maine. Politicians played a disproportionate role in the creation of railways. In a situation that is you know, astounding to our modern standards of conflict of interest, the politicians of the mid-19th century were the major promoters and boosters of railway development. 
They sat on the boards of directors of the companies themselves, offered their services as corporate lawyers, and of course, they helped pass legislation favorable to the companies. All of this was in the name of progress, and ostensibly, they weren't to benefit disproportionately from their involvement. But they did. And the question of how much benefit was too much, of where the line lay between booster and grifter, between assistance and corruption, well, that was a tricky distinction and very much dependent on where you stood and to whom you were loyal. Francis Hinks himself played a key role in starting it all off back when Baldwin and Lafontaine were still heading the Reform Coalition by sponsoring a bill that gave loan guarantees to any rail company that was longer than 70 miles in length. Essentially, the bill made investing in railway ventures a much safer bet. It's kind of like what the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation does now to insure banks and others when they offer mortgages to home buyers with small down payments. With government assurances, lending money to railways became a safer bet and railway development ballooned. Hinks soon put himself at the head of one of these enterprises, even when he was in government, sponsoring the creation of the largest rail company of the age, the Grand Trunk Railway. It was to run from Sarnia in the west through Toronto and all the way to Montreal. The goal was to buy up all the traffic from the Canadian west, that is, western Upper Canada, and direct it to the east. The company also signed agreements with Western American railway companies to try to get access to the American market. Eventually, it joined with another company to take the rail traffic all the way to the Atlantic Ocean to Portland, Maine. This was a way to bypass the frozen St. Lawrence River and provide year-round rail access to and from the interior. The rival of the Grand Trunk, though, was the Great Western and one of its directors was none other than Sir Alan McNabb, our old friend from Upper Canada, who had helped to put down William Lyme Mackenzie's rebellion in 1837. After his counter-rebellion heroics, McNabb had taken up his spot as a key conservative figure in the assembly. But his heart was always in business. In the early 1850s, he was the de facto conservative leader in Parliament, Hinks's rival, and also closely tied to the rival railway company. It was McNabb versus Hinks, the Grand Trunk versus the Great Western. While many politicians were happy to get on board the train of railway progress, both for their own personal gain, but also to develop the country and open up Canadian markets, the road to economic progress could be bumpy. Partly this is because railway financing led to so much debt and governments of the age were so keen to offer subsidies and support to help grow this debt. The politicians also invited scrutiny and criticism when it seemed that they had unfairly benefit, benefited from insider knowledge, maybe even taking bribes. This is the problem that Hinks faced over the winter of 1853 and 1854. Now, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the accusations, which are probably too tricky uh, to tease out. Just let me say that it appeared, and may or may not have been true, that Francis Hinks and the then mayor of Toronto had rearranged the debt of one railway company for their own personal benefit. They seemed to have profited to the amount of 10,000 pounds, which may not sound like much, but would today be something like $1.5 million. So, not too small. These accusations of corruption and bribery followed Hinks all through the summer of 1853 and the winter of 1854. 
Oh, yeah. And there's also the little fact that Parliament had burnt down again. Now, in fairness, this time it seemed to be just an accidental fire in early February, uh, not the work of an angry mob. But still. Then in early April came the news that Britain had entered the war against Russia in the Crimea, which stirred up the usual round of pro-imperial excitement. But the government could still not meet because, if you can believe it, the next building that was supposed to house Parliament, a convent that was in the midst of being converted for use of the parliamentarians, it too burned down. That's three parliaments and three fires in five years if you're counting. You really can't make this stuff up. Now, Hinks did have one feather in his cap. He had helped the Governor General, Lord Elgin. Yes, Elgin is still around. He who has been pelted by the mob back in 1849. Hinks had helped Elgin to travel to the United States and sign a free trade agreement with the United States. Remember, at this time, the Canadians enjoyed responsible government for most domestic matters. But on foreign affairs, things like treaties, it was still the British who were in charge though certainly with a lot of local input. Elgin managed to win for British North America a reciprocity treaty, free trade in some goods. Elgin came back from Washington in early June 1854 with a signed treaty. It would need to be adopted into law by the American Congress later that summer, but this was a sure sign of good economic prospects. Alas, for poor Hinks, it was too little, too late. In June of 1854, the assemblymen gathered in a Quebec music hall, which, rather unexpectedly given what it was supposed to be used for, had the qualification of having bad acoustics. The anger at Hinks and the government was so strong that it likely didn't matter. There was to be a lot of shouting. Hinks, already suffering from repeated personal attacks and charges of corruption, clearly hoped to escape with just a short session. The government's initial address didn't include a plan to deal with any of the major issues, clergy reserves or seigneurial tenure, and was rather just a short list of small pieces of legislation. As an explanation, Hinks claimed that given the Parliament was to be expanded in the next session from 42 members for each section to 65, it would be better to just get this out of the way and then hold a new election. The various components of the opposition were not pleased. They wanted to hold the government, and Hinks personally, to account for the allegations of corruption. They also wanted to point out the obvious, that the government hadn't delivered on its promises to deal with the major issues of the day. This would, of course, lead to a test of confidence. Various opposition members added amendments to the government's address, essentially claiming that the Assembly did not have confidence in the government. This was how responsible government was supposed to work, you recall. Hinks and Morin and their coalition governed with the support of the Assembly. If the Assembly removed that confidence by just this kind of a vote or amendment, the government ought to fall. And that's exactly what happened. Two amendments to the address indicated that it was unacceptable that the government had not dealt either with the clergy reserves or seigneurial tenure. There was amendments passed by a considerable margin, and the Hinks-Morin government fell. But the hubbub did not end there. The leader of the next largest group in the assembly spent the following day in his hotel room impatiently waiting for a message from the governor. Alan McNabb expected that he would be asked to form a government now that the one led by Hinks and Morin had been voted out of office. But it was not to be. 
When the assembly next met two days later, it soon became clear that the governor, Elgin, was going to grant Hinks a dissolution of parliament so that there could be a new election. McNabb wouldn't have the chance to form a new government. Hinks and Morin would instead be able to go to the people, ostensibly holding their cabinet posts. The assembly erupted in indignation with the government's many opponents shouting over each other to decry this outrageous maneuver. But it was all for naught. The election would have to decide the issue. The summer election of 1854 was actually a, a decisive moment in the politics of the age, though few knew it at the time. Canadians went to the polls that summer arguing about issues they had been disputing for quite some time, about sectional differences, about representation by population, about the clergy reserves and seigneurial tenure, and of course, about expensive government and the problem of corruption. One element added uncertainty to the whole event. This was the addition of all those new seats in the assembly, the increase in size from 84 to 130, to, from 42 to 65 for each section. For Hinks, the campaign was something of a disaster, and no small part of that was played by the handsome and ornery George Brown. Brown ran for election himself and used his newspaper to attack the government for its failure to stick to reform principles and to stand up for the rights of upper Canadians. A number of the clear grits who had previously been won over by Hinks now agreed with Brown. It had likely been a mistake to join with Hinks and had only led to their continuous humiliation. Brown was so distrustful of Hinks that in some writings where there was no independent reformer running, that is, where only a Hinks supporter was running against a Tory, Brown and the Globe went so far as to say that Upper Canadians should support the Tory candidate. Brown's plan was to try to build a coalition between the non-Hinks reformers, the Clear Grits, and even those in Lower Canada. It was a worthwhile dream, but it was soon to be dashed. In the wake of the election, it was not clear exactly who would form a government. No single group had achieved a clear majority. In Lower Canada, the results were not far off what they had been before, but the results in Upper Canada were harder to determine. So when the Assembly met in September, Hinks and Morin, still ostensibly in power, tried to see if, in the confused mess of the new enlarged assembly, they could form some kind of coalition. It wasn't to be. They lost the first vote on the question of who would be speaker. Then, when the assembly first tried to deal with the problem of a few contested elections, a really not uncommon problem at this time, Hinks and his supporters again lost a crucial vote. Hinks saw the writing on the wall and went to the governor. He officially stepped down as minister. It would be up to others to determine who, if anyone, could form a government. George Brown might have been hopeful that the reformers of his liking could pull something off, but this was not to be either. Governor Elgin instead turned to Alan McNabb, the man they called the Old Knight. And McNabb had quite the trick to play. McNabb went into negotiations with various factions and came out with an announcement that the Tories would join a government with the supporters of Hinks. Now, Hinks himself would not join the government, but two of his upper Canadian supporters would sit on the executive. They'd be joined by McNabb and two other conservatives, and they would form a government with the large French-Canadian bloc who had already been in government before, headed by Morin. What this essentially meant was the building of a new coalition, 
a coalition which would come to be called the Liberal Conservative Party or coalition. It was, in fact, the founding of the modern Conservative Party, a union between the moderate and conservative elements of French Canada, excluding the Liberal Rouge, alongside the more conservative reformers and Tories of Upper Canada. The Tories had long been saying that the French Canadians didn't really belong with the Upper Canadian reformers. Their conservative instincts of group preservation and respect for the established church could more readily fit with the Tories of Upper Canada. Well, they're going to get a chance to see if it could actually work. So, George Brown had been right. Everyone had been in a false position. The only problem for Brown was that when all the rearranging was done, he and other reformers found themselves on the outside looking in. It wouldn't be the last time. Thanks so much for listening to season two of 1867 and all that. We're now neck deep in the political intrigue of the 1850s. Don't worry, I haven't lost sight of the fact that this is indeed called 1867 and all that. We are very much moving forward to the politics of confederation in the next decade. First, though, we really need to watch how this continuously shifting political sands of the Canadas, the building and collapse and rebuilding of political coalitions, the perennial problem and opportunity of, of the politics in the age, actually worked in practice. The strange beast that was the United Province of Canada, the coalition of Protestants and Catholics, of French and English, this prosperous and bustling community of agriculturalists, traders and railway builders, struggled to find a system of government that could satisfy its various components. And it was in this dissatisfaction, this constant searching out of new solutions to a perennial problem, that we will finally find the origins of a wider Canadian and really British North American Confederation. But that's still some ways off. Next week, we're back in the Canadas, looking to see whether this new Conservative coalition can actually do what Hinks and Morant failed to do. And we'll be introduced to a man who has been sitting quietly in the Assembly, slowly becoming a leading figure of moderation and good sense. That is, we'll be introduced to the young John A. Macdonald. If you liked what you've heard, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 1867 and All That is created by me, Christopher Dummett. This year, it's also funded by you, the listeners. For $5 a month, you can become an 1867 and All That patron, a real-life supporter of history in action. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of All That, 1867 and All That. <laughs>